Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Ten years ago, Dan Snaith was recording 60s indebted psychedelic rock, but he now finds himself as one of the biggest draws in modern dance music. It's been a winding journey up to this point for Snaith. Each of his albums of Caribou has covered new stylistic ground, with stops at pop, IDM and krautrock among his many deviations. Towards the end of the last decade, Snaith started hitting the clubs in his hometown of London, hanging out with producers like Fortet, Floating Points and James Holden, feeding these experiences into his music. It would be inaccurate to call Swim a dance record, but when the album was released in 2010, it made a real splash within that scene. Its broad synthesizer strokes and warm atmospheres were inspired by Snake's time spent at Plastic People hearing Theo Parrish, and the record ended up as RA's top album of that year. With club music firmly under his skin, Snake started an alias called Daphne for his dance floor productions and DJ gigs releasing a well-received album and becoming a respected and popular figure on the DJ circuit. The occasion for my recent chat with him in London was the release of Our Love, Snaith's latest album was Caribou. He told me how the birth of his first child had a surprising impact on writing the record as he reflected on the many twists and turns that have got him to this latest creative headspace. So to begin with, you said in the past that your releases as Caribou tended to kind of change depending on what you were interested in and excited in in the production of it. Bearing in mind you're about to release your next record, I wonder what was kind of informing and influencing this record. I mean, in some ways, uh, this was a tendency I tried to stop or have it stop being such a central thing in my music because looking back at some of the records I made in the past, they're so beholden to a particular kind of music from the past, like 60s psychedelic music or some particular genre or sound. And I thought that kind of interferes with me wanting to get my own sound, make my record sound like me, be kind of personal to me and about where I'm at at that point and not kind of looking to some other genre or some other place. Mm. The reason that that happened in the past was just as a music fan, I'm always discovering old records, discovering new records. So, I mean, definitely, it's funny, actually, I kind of got it wrong with this record. I thought when I was starting it, I got it wrong in the sense that I made a totally different record than I was expecting to. When I was starting recording the record, I was really excited by the super digital, glassy, glossy kind of transparent sounds that you hear in kind of contemporary R&B in the mainstream and the underground in lots of dance music that kind of is excited by and influenced by those sounds. Mm. And I thought, 
it would be interesting to do my take on those things, which I'm kind of glad didn't happen so much because it's so ubiquitous these days anyway. It kind of should have been expected because it's kind of sounded new and exciting. Everybody's kind of feeding off that energy. I still hear elements of that in some of the tracks on the record, like tracks like Dive with the kind of cut up vocals and the kind of glassy sounding synthesizers. A lot of it ended up being, it was kind of tangentially influenced by more classic soul music and music like classic Stevie Wonder records, Marvin Gaye, Sly Stone, those kind of records that I wasn't listening to as a producer, as a quote unquote professional musician, but mm. as a dad, I was had a daughter in the last few years and I would just be sitting around the house with her and thinking, well, what, what should we listen to? What would you want a human new pair of human ears to hear for the first time? And those are the records that I'd go back to without at all thinking that they were having an impact on the music that I was making. Mm. And it's only really in retrospect. I mean, it's not a kind of direct, people probably wouldn't hear it if I hadn't mentioned it, maybe, I guess. But um, the sentiment, there's something about the the kind of emotional directness, the will to kind of communicate and make music that's generous and about sharing and all those kind of things. That's where I think that came from partly in the music. So have you been thinking closely about what you've been playing to your daughter? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning... We used to have the hour of dub, which is like every, this is when she was like, couldn't even move, basically. It was just lying there. We used to have an hour every morning where I just play dub records to her. And I thought that that would be, it's soothing music. And it's also like kind of sensual music in the sense that there's like bass vibrations or I thought it would be good for somebody. I don't, I had no idea how she was even experiencing the world at that point. And then there's one Emeralds track, Emeralds, good friends of mine and a track Candy Shop just would stop her crying instantly. It was <laughs> insane. And then she went through a craft work phase and then I tried the soul records and now she doesn't care anymore. She's three. She is only interested in nursery rhymes. And I've got to realize that I have to step back and not be the kind of overzealous music fan dad or whatever. And she, she's going to figure this out for herself. So what would a baby response to uh, something she was feeling look like? A baby response to something that she was feeling, yeah. How would you, how would she kind of oh, respond? Well, it, de- it depended a lot on the age. I mean, really, that at an, a young age, it's about stopping her crying <laughs> for, yeah, sure. for the most part. But now she's dancing around and all that kind of stuff. You know, I have a good time dancing around my living room with her. <laughs> Do you feel as though the time constraints of becoming a father kind of had an impact on how the record turned out? Yeah, in a big way. I mean, it, it was more. My studio's at home in the basement of our little house, and it was much more the case that where previously, with previous records, I just shut myself in there for hours and hours and hours, and, you know, I was kind of like a crazed workaholic in the past, and would just spend all my time down there. This time, it was more like I'd have a couple hours, and then I'd be with her, or I'd be doing something else, that you know, some balancing the other things going on in my life. I think it meant that, I mean, first of all, it's probably a healthy thing to happen to my, me but also it meant that all those kind of things, all the themes of things that are going on in my life, not just about her, but about other things, other relationships in my life and things going on around me were right there when I went to make music because I was constantly going back and forth between those two worlds. And it means that much more of that stuff is in the record than has been previously or would have been otherwise, maybe. 
I've seen you talk about it in terms of space as well and something that you'd been hoping to achieve with your music over the years but never quite getting there. Mm. Do you think time constraints, again, played a role in this? Maybe you didn't have the time to muse on something or add that extra layer? No, because actually I, I made even more ridiculous... I mean, it, it would be broken up by that, but it's been four years since the last record, so I've yeah, had sure. plenty of time to to mess around with stuff and actually the fact that it's more focused and more concise and less things going on was by design i'd end up getting rid of loads and loads of elements in the music so i had that i feel like i the the records aren't going to come out until i've had that kind of exploratory time to to figure out what i want to be in there and different avenues different ways that songs could could go and then make those decisions consciously it's it's not like this record was rushed in any way that's that's mm. for sure this it was quite a long kind of gestation process you were working on it for quite some time after the last record swim came out in 2010 there was such a long period of touring things really kind of kept building and building and we just kept getting more and more exciting offers to go and play in different parts of the world play different festivals and whatnot and then touring with radiohead and then having my daughter in there as well and and releasing the daphne record in that time but I'd been doing little, you know, recording little bits and pieces, but substantially the bulk of the record was recorded in the last 18 months, two years when I finally said, okay, now I'm going to stop everything and go back to doing that. But it meant I had a lot of time to reflect. And I guess the primary impulse for making this record was about the response to Swim and the way that it connected with people and thinking how wonderful it was that the music had traveled in these unexpected ways that that I didn't think it would have done. I mean, mm. and and this record was about making a record that the intention was to be shared and for the people that were going to hear it and to be generous somehow, to be outward looking about sharing more of myself personally in the music, making it communicate directly rather than be some kind of obtuse thing that is about me disappearing into my head and making something that's a kind of headspace record it was mm. more about communicating directly you've mentioned uh, a few times this idea of a more direct connection like, yeah what does that look like i think the exactly what you're saying this record has more space it's more focused the, yeah. my vocal is right in the middle of the mix most i mean almost all the time with swim things were the whole aesthetic was that things were kind of spinning around you all the time nothing stayed still for a, a second everything was always moving and uh, you know that's something that i'm really proud of and happy that I did but it, it is at odds with the idea of just the kind of calmness and directness of saying these are the things that matter in the song place them right there mm. you know carefully in the mix so that was the idea was that that allows you to be more direct of shortening that kind of metaphorical distance between you and the person listening to it but it also affords you a new opportunities in that if if you have more space in a track, some small detail has more import, makes more of an effect than if you've got a thousand noises happening all the time. You, you know those things go unnoticed. So I really reveled in that, and that the kind of producer side of me could hold, grab onto that kind of thing, like thinking about mm. where exactly one little tiny sound that I'd made or that I liked would fit in the song, and those kind of details. Had you found yourself being uh, drawn to this like thousand sounds approach, as you put it, in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the earlier records that I made were just me cramming as much sound in there as possible, and the kind of joy of that, the joy of of uh, 
filling up every conceivable space with sound, that idea of maximalism, most obviously in the record Up in Flames that I released in 2003, was just like, there was no editing. You know, it was just keep piling things in there mm. and don't take anything out. Just if there's a problem, add something else to cover it up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> What's the appeal in that approach to you? Would, you? would you say, what do you chalk it up to? There's more of a kind of joyousness about it you know i mean like you don't have to be this record is much more considered it's much more about like okay what's the person going to hear when they hear this is this section too long is this idea in the wrong place blah 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 kind of structuring the songs in a kind of a composition a composed sense whereas those tracks were much more i mean it was kind of in a related way to the way the daphne tracks were made just throwing ideas in there but that record that I made in the past, Up in Flames, was was one where I just never said no to anything. Everything went in there, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I see. And you'd kind of mentioned that with Swim, you did kind of find a new audience. You did cross over in many ways. And, you know, the dance public and the dance mm-hmm. press definitely, you know, were, were very warm to what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder in writing Our Love, did that sort of kind of engender a new kind of pressure that you you had reached over to this new audience? Did you feel a certain pressure that's sort of connected to that? I mean, I felt it differently, I think, because the music that I've made has changed so much over the years, is kind of stylistically or whatever in intent has been all over the place. And because I've been doing it for long enough that I know these things are, people's reaction to my music is going to come and go and I when you get into that game of kind of second guessing what people want, I had that in between my first and second record. I had Mm -hmm. this thought of like, I've got to make a record that's like my first one again, because people loved it. I mean, some people loved it, not that many, but I've got to satisfy those people that like the first one. And I couldn't do it. For one thing, I'd try to make music that was just the same as what I'd done before. and, And I couldn't bring myself to do it. It just didn't work. And when I did, it would be like a worse version of something that I'd done in the past. Mm. And, also because Swim was for me my most idiosyncratic record. It was my most, it wasn't in any way thinking about about crossing over or about reaching new people. It was about yeah. me making this record that was very much my own kind of thing and, and not about the consequences of it. I felt all the kind of warm reception that it got as a as an affirmation and not as a kind of pressurized, oh, you've done this thing that is closer to this audience or that audience. <laughs> And you have to try, I have to try and do that again. It was more just an affirmation to kind of do the thing that I wanted to do again, you know. I mean, do you get the sense that you have fans that have stuck with you over the decade or so that you've been releasing music? I wonder that, actually. I mean, definitely some. Yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to quantify in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I appreciate it. And I get people who say, you know, I don't like these new records that you're making as much or... I like this one particular record that you made and I don't like the others so much. That's a totally valid perspective and it's interesting for me to know that. And it and it makes sense to me. I guess, you know, I've got quite a broad taste in music and one that's changing all the time as well. Mm-hmm. And it's unrealistic to think that people... It would be lovely to think that there are people who have been there for that whole journey with me, but it's unrealistic. They're living different lives with different contexts and, you know, heading off in a different direction. It, it makes sense that maybe our paths cross for a moment or two and then yeah sure always i mean thinking particularly about your u.s fan base do you feel as though you took maybe like u.s indie kids on a bit of a journey towards dance music you know i mean i i definitely view you as an artist who's managed to 
bridge that divide if you like and yeah. there's always traditionally been skepticism among like guitar loving us audiences yeah i mean i definitely have had the sense not just in the us but various places of being in between two things you mm -hmm. know we show up to a dance music festival and we're the only band with a guitar and a bass guitar on stage and two drum kits or we show up at a a festival with a bunch of bands playing and we're the only ones with sequencers and you know we are definitely in between not that that's that rare these days but i do have that feeling sometimes and my main sense is that that gap is getting smaller all the time maybe earlier on when we i remember you know the first tours that we did and we did a tour with kieran fortet and prefuse 73 i remember lots of people being kind of mystified or it was in america and people being to Kieran's set, we were playing more as a live band and Kieran was playing with it behind a laptop and electronic stuff. And that being more of a thing that people were scratching their head about. And, and now I don't think that's an issue at all for him or, or anybody. I'm not sure that I think the, the context has changed completely. I was interested to hear about your time in London. I guess Kieran's been a long-term collaborator, but when you really started connecting with the club sounds that were coming out of London and thinking about like hooking up with people like Floating Points, kind of paint a bit of a picture for us of what it was like in that time. I, I guess we're talking four or five years now, but when you really started to connect with like club culture. Yeah, so I mean, I, the, when I first moved to London, I'd been DJing in Toronto and I'd you know, it was kind of 2001, so it was like the tail end of the popularity of UK Garage and, you know, So Solid Crew were having top 10 singles and that kind of thing. And I was down at Black Market Records buying records all the time. And there was a big, you know, that excitement was, was a big part of what I loved about moving to London in the first place. And then in the intervening years, I kind of moved away from that and more towards the things that were exciting me were or bands like the Boredoms or Lightning Bolt or Animal Collective or Black Dice, those kind of things happening in the mid-2000s. Mm -hmm. Maybe the, the furthest that I went in that direction was when I was making Andorra. I was making a record that sounded very much like, this was in 2006, I was recording that, and it was, sounded very much like a kind of psychedelic pop thing from the 60s and very you know far from dance music. Nobody was asking me to DJ, that kind of thing. But at that same time was when Kieran had started doing the second room at the end for border communities nights there he'd play yes, the whole night yeah. and at the time i was I, I mean it wasn't the only input from dance music because jeremy from junior boys had always been introducing me to like disco records cosmic kind of stuff and that whole world that was happening in the mid 2000s as well so i was, I was aware of that thing but i started going out to clubs again while i was making andorra which was the most the furthest record that I've made from dance music, but you hear it. It's funny. It's almost laid out chronologically that record because the last record on there, the last song on there is this track called Niobe, which is basically my attempt at a James Holden pastiche because I became totally obsessed with his music, you know, late. I was late getting to, to his music and discovering that whole sound when the idiots are winning came yeah, out. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is so exciting and trying to, you know, I totally failed, but it's kind of became its own thing. That track me trying to, to emulate the sounds that the kind of spontaneity and excitement of the music that he was making. And then in between Andorra and swim, that was really where, where it happened going down, seeing Theo at plastic people meeting, guys like Sam Floating Points and 
you know, Joy Orbison and the Hassel guys and all those things happening in London around that time and around small clubs like Plastic People and going out way more. That's where the excitement that turned into me making swim came from, for sure. You mentioned that you don't drink or do drugs. Mm -hmm. um, was this something that you feel kind of impacted on your relationship with clubs? Do you feel like you were viewing it through a slightly different lens and kind of obvious but i've never drank in my life so yeah only briefly did drugs for a, a while and so it's something that's been there the whole time you know i was going to clubs when i first moved to toronto in late 90s or whatever and it's something that all my friends in high school and and when i moved to university and blah 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 were always partying and doing drugs and drinking and i just would get carried along by their enthusiasm their state of mind mm. and it never I mean, it was kind of like, oh yeah, Dan, he never, he never drinks, he never does drugs, but it never seemed to really separate me from what was going on. That this is my perspective, and probably my friends as well, because I was around them all the time while these things were, while we were going out. I mean, I'm sure it does. It gives me a different perspective, but it's not something that I reflect. It's something that other people are like, oh, that's unusual, but for me, it's the norm. So it's you know, it doesn't. I don't think about it that much at all. No, I see. It's interesting. You'd kind of seemingly formed quite a tight knit group in London. Mm -hmm. it seems to be like like minded individuals. We'd mentioned Karen, Floating Points, James Holden. What was the kind of common ground between you guys? Is there, there something to do in your your attitude or the way you consume music? Like, what is it that kind of makes it click with you with you guys? There definitely is, particularly those people. You, I mean, when I met Kieran in ninety seven, ninety eight, something like that, and very very quickly, even though he was already releasing music, and I was just some random guy that came up and started talking to him at a festival, and we kept in touch, and he helped me get my music released in the first place. And we very, very quickly had the sense that like we were kind of musical kindred spirits and have been become really close friends. Something about yeah, the intention behind it, the music that we love, the the shared love of music that we have in, in common and same with James and same with Sam when I met those guys, the same kind of feeling that, oh, here's somebody who's it's I guess it's kind of hard for me to articulate exactly mm. what it is, but more of a kind of free ranging spirit about what we love about music or what the intention of our music is, what music has the potential to do, you know, not, I guess this is something that I often reflect on. And it's funny because we're kind of talking, yeah, as if it's some kind of scene. But the thing that I've always felt about me is that I've never fit in in a scene. And somebody who comes up in a very particular context of like the music that I'm making sounds like this and fits in with this larger thing. I think that's a wonderful thing. It gives a real sense of import to what you're doing and it gives a real sense of a kind of shared mission for what you're doing but the people that i've always and obviously loads of amazing music is is made that way but the music that the people that i've always had most in common with and the music that i've loved the most is made by the weird outsider person who's doing something slightly different on the periphery and when i meet james or sam or kieran that that's the sense that i have that like here's another weirdo who's kind of doing their own thing that's halfway in between here and there that's the space that makes mm. the most sense to me i mean i you know i grew up in this weird little town where there were only a handful of us that were interested in the kind of music that well, electronic music at all or hip-hop or you know whatever the sonic youth or whatever the, those i always felt growing up in a small town meant that i felt like i was doing something that was unusual was not for everybody's taste was something all my musical idols have been people who 
you know, their career. You know, they didn't like sell a lot of records or those kind of things. So I'd heard that Kieran's become something of like a, an important sounding board for you. You'd said in the past that he's kind of one of the first people that you play your music to. Yeah. What is it that you need to hear at those points? Like what does one of those conversations sound like between you guys? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's always been Kieran and, and also my wife are the two primary people. And then on this record, also Jesse Lanza and Owen Pallet, who play on the record, but are also we're very much more involved in the whole kind of editing process and mm. giving me feedback and all that stuff. I mean, the primary thing that I need is honesty at that point. And my sense of it is that if I sit with these tracks for a long time, after a few months, I'll probably come to the same conclusions that my wife or Kieran would, because we have similar musical tastes. And in the end, I'd probably line up, not always, but a lot of the time. But the thing, I get so lost in it in the moment, like a day after having made a track, a week after having made a track, and I'm making music by myself almost all the time that it's invaluable i've kind of lost my perspective on it and kieran i mean he's perceptive in many different ways regarding to his own music and my music and whoever's and he can just cut through you know i'm kind of hearing it in this biased way that's biased by whatever else is going on in my life the things that i'm doing and, and he'll say L listen the thing that's exciting about what what you're doing is this, the thing that's not exciting is this, and it needs to head in that direction. And I think in a few weeks or months later, I would probably come to those same conclusions, but, yeah, no, but I it see. helps to have somebody in the moment that's able to do that. Are you someone who usually takes that type of feedback in their stride? Are you, are you kind of cool with that? Yeah, I need yeah. it. I yeah, mean, right. you know, somebody working by themselves, I feel like anybody working by themselves needs that kind of thing because it's so easy to get lost in what you're doing. And yeah, it's, it's crucial. I don't know what I'd do without those people to to be sounding board and to help me with those all those kind of decisions. So returning to this time around sort of pre-swims and you kind of reconnecting with with clubbing and, and such like, what do some of those early DJ gigs look like for you? Because you'd mentioned that like DJing and DJing culture was something that you were involved in like back in Toronto at an earlier time. Like yeah. how did it feel to get back into the stride of, of DJing? It was really, really exciting. And it started out probably some of the first I got, I did a border community night at uh, Corsica Studios and there was all this energy from the music that I was making was informed by that whole scene and that whole sound. And I wanted to, to play it, not only to play the music that I was making, I was doing that in the DJ sets, I was playing tracks that I was working on and that kind of thing, but also play all the music that I was excited by and inspired by while I was making it. And it was, it was very gradual to begin with until Swim came out. And then when Swim came out, all of a sudden people were like, oh wait, we see this guy's music in a different context. We could book this guy to DJ. And I'd done a few DJ mixes around the time of the release and mm. following the release. And that's when I started to get to play, you know, longer sets in a club, play the whole night in a club or play sets at festivals and stuff like that. I mean, th that's where the Daphne record came out of. It was that whole period of that's, that's what made me want to make that music. Yeah. I mean, that must have really helped you creatively to have that flexibility in performance. Yeah. So the... The only record that I've ever made that was being easy to make was the Daphne record. Oh, really? It just came together super quickly because there was a real sense of purpose to it. You know, there was like, I'm making these tracks for this to play in my DJ sets. It wasn't about releasing it or wasn't, that wasn't the intention at all at the time. And something about that just made me able to get, get in there and work really quickly on it, which is something I wish I could kind of retain just for 
pragmatic purposes, it wouldn't take me four years to release a, a Garibou record if I could do the same thing. But yeah, like, how would you describe your DJ style? I think the thing that I love about all my favorite DJs, the kind of ability to surprise you, the ability to do something unexpected, to do something totally weird and use that kind of to build up the energy in the room. It's when it, there were times when I started DJing where I'd, I'd focus on the kind of mixing and make sure every all the mixes were seamless and all mm. those kind of things. I'm sure lots of DJs have had this experience. You spend your whole set head down looking at you know, the records you're playing or whatever, with your really tuned into what you're queuing everything up and then you look up and the the floor is like half emptied because you've been paying too much attention to those kind of technical things and not enough to what the feeling in the room is like so that's always part of what i'm trying to do or hoping to do when i'm djing is like keep that sense of spontaneity share that sense of excitement that are you know, you're not in exactly the same position as the people on the dance floor but you there's a responsibility to kind of be in tune with that and not mm. be indulgent and be like, okay, now I'm going to follow this plan for the rest of the set. It should be, it should be decided on the, on the fly. Do you find that the sensation of like moving people with a DJ set sort of differs greatly from when you perform as a band? Like do you get a different kick out of it? Yeah, it's a totally different kick. And it's one that I didn't expect being as intense and as wonderful as the band thing. I mean, it's kind of, comparably amazing some of the best dj nights like the i did all night at horst one night but in berlin mm. and other night yeah the other nights where i've just you know some of the best times of my life playing in in little clubs around the world and uh i didn't really you know i've, I've had great times at clubs but i didn't realize that you know that it would be like that as a dj for me and and something that i really feel so lucky that i get to do both you know it's uh kind of it's not that common that somebody gets to be in both of those worlds and and yet the live thing is incredible too i mean but it's such a different maybe it's because it's a, the pleasure of playing somebody else's music rather than your own i mean you know it's sometimes when i'm djing i play some of my own tracks but it's about that kind of sharing thing rather than the kind of presentation of what of music that you've made or whatever i don't, I don't know but they're both wonderful in totally different ways you said something interesting, actually. I guess it was in this period we've been discussing when you really did become like ensnared in club sounds that you were kind of fascinated with this idea that with club music, there was a, a basic template in play, if you like, the functionality of like moving a dance floor. But what goes on top of that is yeah. kind of open-ended. Was this sort of an idea that you were keen to explore with the Daphne material? Yeah, and even with Swim, which was kind of halfway in between. That, yeah. You know, that was my sensation of listening to Theo's tracks when he'd play them for like 25 minutes in Plastic People. it just play the same thing over and over again, and it expands in a way that you wouldn't have that sensation if you were listening at home because it's got that foundational underpinning and then weird things going on over top or those super long Villa Lobos tracks that the more eccentric ones with, you know, weird samples and weird sounds or structuring a track in a way that you, I found it really liberating. You, you structure tracks in a totally different way that you wouldn't think of mm. unless you were thinking of the, them being played in a club. And, and it, there was a sense that that was the thing that really excited me about dance music was the sense that it was more open-ended. It was more, contrary to the cliche which if you ask people in the general public what is dance music oh it's all the same it's repetitive it kind of fulfills some kind of template it's purely functional the functional aspect is actually liberating to try different things and i, I still feel that way definitely i mean with that in mind do you feel that 
it's somewhat surprising that more people don't kind of take that as motivation you know as you see so many djs and as kind of operating in such a limited sound palette does it kind of surprise you that people don't you know take the opportunity to to broaden things i mean i don't know there's still loads and loads of interesting exciting djs out there and also people producing music at home that they intend as some sort of referencing club music in some way but deconstructed in a way that means it probably will never be dj'd but it still it draws inspiration from those things it's such a fertile world such so much wonderful music being made at this moment you know yeah. i think it's uh, i'm not not too critical of of course there's always going to be people that are playing you know playing it straighter down the line or whatever there's that's no problem you know there's room in the world for all that and, and yeah all those things so when you did come to write this material as Daphne did you find that your approach to the process changed a bit it was yeah. completely different it was like all those tracks were made in a couple hours two three hours before heading to a club or before heading to the airport to go to, to DJ those tracks came about in a totally different way and then when coming back to make having done that and having made those tracks and and they there are certain strengths of working in that way you hear the kind of rough rawness in those tracks when i listen back to them i hear me turning knobs and pushing buttons and and not going back and, and thinking oh that's too loud or that's too short or that's too long whatever i mean I'm, again fortunate to have both contexts of, to be able to go back and making the new record to think in a more considered way in a more composed way those are both things that i love about music and being able to work in those two modes suits me really well mm, i mean do you think the speed of the tracks were coming together was just simply indicative of how inspired you were at the time inspired and also just because they needed to be done you know so sometimes the best thing that you can have to make a piece of music is a deadline and the fact that i'd be this thing's got to be like five minutes long at least so i can play it in my set tonight so okay keep going throwing ideas together really quickly mm. that was definitely part of it so when it comes to the caribou stuff it's traditionally that's been more about as you termed it like more considered approach kind of more layers like going over things would, would that be fair to say yeah for sure yeah i think it's interesting because um i mean if you just came to caribou music you maybe would make the assumption that it was put together by a band mm. is this in like a an end product that you'd always been striving for you know this sense of kind of width and many things going on i don't think when i started making these records i had much of an idea of what i wanted them to be yeah. and, and now maybe i have a better sense and i, and I feel like the reason that they sound like like there's so much in there in, in terms of different things stylistically and different ideas and some things that sound more programmed, some things that sound more live, all those things. It's because the Caribou records are really kind of the main thrust of me making music. And I want everything that I love about music to be in there. And I want as much of my personal life and all that kind of thing in there as well. I'm hoping that when I look back at these records years from now, that I could remember as much of my life as possible from them and it, whereas the Daphne thing is a very specific I'll definitely remember that exciting yeah. time but when I look back at the Caribou records for me I want them to be like a photo album or tell the whole story of my life at the, mm. the time and share that hopefully too that hopefully some of that translates you know I mean as they are so personal does that make it slightly more tricky to translate the records into a live show with a band and with other people being involved like how does that process work usually we've been doing this for 10 years now more than 10 years the, the kind of idea of me making a studio record and then the band and fortunately i think part of the the reason it's worked and part of the reason it's been 
easier than it could have been is because it's been the same musicians, largely speaking, that have been in this band the whole time. And so we got used to this process of kind of deconstructing the songs and thinking, okay, now what are we going to do? How are we going to put them together? And it's again a, a question of me getting to enjoy another side of it because that process is much more open-ended and democratic and the four of us putting things together rather than me just saying on the album I'm making essentially pretty much every decision whereas with the live show it's the four of us well let's try this somebody says let's try this and we we change the song entirely and it wasn't my original intention and that's wonderful that it Mm. gets to live that I get to live that kind of the music lives at that second life through it in terms of the question of the music being more personal and opening up more through playing live that's definitely been something that it's a slow process when we first started touring with the band all the vocals even though it was me singing on the record were coming off a backing track and being sung by kind of characters in the video Mm. projection which looking back at it now is so amazing we got away with that and somebody didn't call bullshit on that more (laughs) often and then the next record i sung one track and i remember that being such a big deal feeling so exposed and getting up there and singing the song and then increasingly you know singing more and more as the years go on and singing about more and more personal things and there are times definitely when i still feel it you know this it's not like it disappears just because you do it so often you still feel that you're singing something very personal to like a group of people Hmm. but it's something that i i've come to enjoy really and it's part of the wonderful thing about it rather than being afraid of it so much and just just through becoming more confident about it over the course of years i guess i was kind of shocked and and intrigued to read that you'd played over 200 gigs in a recent year yeah what was that experience like and did your voice hold up since 2005 we always did loads and loads of shows after every album we did at least 200 shows because we had to because the shows didn't make they started barely making money and if there's four people in the band you got to do a lot of shows just to make sh- make it worthwhile for those people to yeah. um to spend their year doing that and also because we loved it i mean i you know i love going on tour and it was fantastic almost always sometimes we'd just be like when we do 60 shows in a row in like 60 days or something at the end we'd just be like uh, husks of people at the end of it but yeah, I loved it. Those were wonderful experiences. That's when we got good at playing together. Just, But I think that's the thing that is less common now, that kind of idea of just doing loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of gigs until performing together becomes second nature and you can things improve. You don't have to be thinking about the kind of mundane details of playing. You can think about more intuitively or about bigger ideas about how the the show would be better or how to play the songs so what does the show look like for the um upcoming tour have you you've already started touring the record well we've we started playing festivals this summer yeah we're playing only like three or so three or yeah three songs on the record so the more kind of upbeat ones we were playing more kind of dance tense bigger stages at dance music festivals those kind of things where we wanted to play the songs that more fun for people to dance to and things like that and the more reflective moments on the records on the record we're learning those songs now in terms of what it looks like it still looks very much as it did last time two drum kits synthesizers keyboards which are basically they're all midi controllers all the sounds are coming from software and drum machines and all sorts of 
pedals and things connecting us all so that we can, I mean, the thing that really set us up for this in a really great way was when I'd made swim and previous to that, we'd been much more like a conventional psychedelic rock band, like two guitars and bass and drums and me singing and John singing. And with swim, we were just like, how on earth are we going to do this? This is going to, there's the palette of sounds is way wider. Mm. The flexibility that we have to have in changing the arrangement is much bigger. That was the time when we really, this is something we wanted to do earlier in years and years ago, but the technology hadn't been there. So by the time we got to the point with swim, it really had opened up. I mean, all the things that people are familiar with software and the kind of processing power of computers that we can have everything connected together. We're all kind of able to change different elements of what, you know, if somebody's playing a synthesizer, I can have a control on the filter of their synthesizer. I can have a control on the tempo of the whole song, which is one something we do in one in one song that we play. I can have a button that switches to a completely different section of the song or mutes some sound or well, all those things that are mundane now. But mixing that into the, the more traditional kind of band setup that we had really opened things up massively. Yeah. And so now coming back to interpret this record, which probably for most people when they hear it is the least kind of band sounding record that I've made means that we don't have to worry about those technical hurdles. We, it's all there and we can just think more in terms of what's the most exciting way. What's the most interesting way to play the song rather than how are we going to play, play the song in the first place? We were talking a little bit before we uh, started recording about the uh, period of time between finishing a record and it actually being released. And you'd mentioned to me, interestingly, that you tend to just not listen to it. What's the reason for that? Just because you've heard it so many times. I mean, l literally, I've heard every song on this record thousands and thousands of times. I mean, it kind of crescendos as you get to the end of making a record. I had this kind of interesting revelation, actually, when the album was mixed by this amazing mixing engineer and good friend of mine, David Wrench. And so I'd done my own rough mixes of all the tracks, and I'd worked out all the arrangements and all the you know, it gets to a point where it's essentially my part and it is done. And then I go and sit with David while he makes it sound as, as good as it possibly can. And I, even though I'd heard these songs thousands and thousands of times and, you know, thought I'd heard the record, it wasn't until he'd finished mixing all the tracks and he was like, okay, we should listen through the whole record right now. I'd never done that. I, it was this moment of thinking like, I've been working on this music so intensively for a year or two years, but I'd never sat down and listened through the whole record because there's always something else to be done. There's always like, okay, now I've finished this bass line. Let's go back to this other song and record the vocal. And you never listen to it as somebody's going to hear it. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah. E even when you're sequencing it, maybe you listen to like the last 10 seconds of one song and the first 10 seconds of the, okay, that'll work. Those two songs will go next to one another. <laughs> it was really lovely. It was this experience of hearing it as if it was, as if I was the listener, you know, for the first time. And it really, well, it, yeah, it hit me pretty hard. It kind of, there was my whole life over the last two years in front of me. And that was a sense of kind of it being finished at that point And and being ready to kind of move on and, and not needing to go back and listen to it again. After I'd heard it through and had that experience of, of kind of thinking, yes, it kind of captured the things that I wanted about my life and the things I love about music, then I can move on and worry about other things.
Sun, 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 sun,